This episode is brought to you by Bibliophiles, a production of the Center for Lit Podcast Network, where the Andrews family brings the great ideas of Western literature to bear on the life, art, and culture of our modern world. Look for Bibliophiles, that's Bibliophiles with an F, wherever you get your podcasts, or find curriculum materials, online classes, and book clubs at centerforlit.com. Hello, I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. And I'm Tim McIntosh. And you are listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader, on which we are going to be discussing, as they lay dying, Funniest William Faulkner's 1930 Southern Gothic novel, one of the books for which he was given the Nobel Prize in literature, a uh, very famous book. And uh, we're gonna we're gonna get into all kinds of talk on this book. And I think in this first episode, we're probably going to do some uh, what's the deal with Faulkner. POV type conversation. We're going to try to help organize the characters in our minds, get a sense of what the plot is, kind of do that overview stuff to give ourselves some context for a book that can be a little bit difficult. First though, hey Tim, how's that wedding planning going? We just need to, every week I think we need to do a quick check-in on how your wedding planning is until you get married in May or whenever it ends up being. It's going well. It's actually really fun. We haven't gotten into like the real like nitty gritty details part yet. So it's Mm. just, we're kind of making big decisions like where and who the photographer is going to be and Mm -hmm. what color suit I'm going to wear and things like that. So what color suit are you going to wear? Gray. Oh, that's interesting. Um, well, probably not. Okay. Maybe a light gray. It'll be a summer wedding. So it'll be in like mid to late May. So khaki. Well, I kind of like tan. I like tan. Seersucker in a white dress. Yeah, I have seersucker. But like a seersucker suit and a white dress, that's a no-go. That is definitely a no-go. You should know we do know that, but we'll still try to convince you of it. I can see tan working for you. Tan is very appealing. A light blue of kind of like a soft material is very appealing to both of us. So I think I'm going to go in with the hopes that it's going to be something tan or something light blue. And I'm just going to say, just surprise me, um, suit maker. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm going to say the same thing when I go to the haberdashery. Well, you're wearing blue right now. So Mm -hmm. you look good in blue. I could see it. Thanks. My brother got married last July. It was very hot. We wore blue. Everybody wore what, what shades kind of blue. blue? A, a navy. It's, what color blue? It was. Uh, yeah, I guess it would fall under the navy category. So it was kind of like, dark. It was dark, but not real dark. You know, yeah. it was decidedly blue, not one of those blues where you're like, "That's almost a dark gray," or "That's almost a black." You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. Right. Heidi, how are you? I'm doing so great. I am making all kinds of plans for Tim's wedding. I just need to know when it is. Okay. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. well, hopefully. We, we're, gonna, we're trying to lock that answer down today. Well, if you get a text message while we're recording that says, hey, we're going to do it May 13th, then just yeah. drop it here on the on the show for us. Just like oh, a wow. conversation. That would yeah. be interesting. Fun. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what day of the week May 13th is. It might be weird to have a wedding on like a Tuesday. But it I'll tell you weird. what. 
We'll be there. And the great thing is, if we're still there the next day, we could just record the show because we record on Wednesdays. So. <laughs> Galen would love that. Hey, baby, let's press pause on the honeymoon. I got some yep. close reads to record. Yeah, well, priorities. And she, you know, she's got to get used to the life that you live anyway. Right. Uh, <laughs> the demands. Well, we are here to discuss as they lay dying, speaking of lives you have to live anyway. And this is a, a very complicated book and it's getting some interesting well, uh, I was going to say predictable, but I don't mean that in like a pejorative way. Just predictable response book. on the page. On, yeah. on, on the page, it's difficult. It's Tim. You said via text. You know, we we text throughout the week. We have a we have a text thread, and you said that reading Faulkner for a lot of people can be like eating vegetables. Yeah. What did you? What you know? Explain what you mean by that. I'll I'll tell a story. I, when I taught at Gutenberg, all we did was read classics. Old, mm-hmm. and most of the books were written before the 20th century. Mm-hmm. And I found that when I would sit down and read a book that was written, you know, late 20th, early 21st century, it was an absolute breeze. It was so easy to read books like that. Mm-hmm. And I think it's because I had eaten my vegetables. I had read all of these really, really hard books and you get used to unique syntaxes and, mm-hmm. you know, shifting perspectives and kind of a different universe of values. You know, the universe of values in mm. Beowulf is so different <laughs> than the one that we're living in. Mm. So that's what I mean. Faulkner is like reading a classic, both because he's a great writer, but also because the kind of strains he puts on you or the sort of demands he puts on you as a reader. It's akin to eating your vegetables. So uh, Heidi, your experience with Faulkner, what have you read? Is this How many times have you read this book? Where, where does this fall for you on, in your reading life? This is only my second time reading As I Lay Dying. I read it in high school and hated it because I didn't understand <laughs> it. It's the same reason mm-hmm. that people say think they hate math, right? Because it's hard for them to do and they you can't really do it. You don't really hate math. You and, hate yeah. not understanding math. Exactly. So I, I hated it, but it was really, it was really myself that I hated in the moment. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, right. I since have read quite a bit of Faulkner, um, and developed a taste for him, but like eating Mm -hmm. your vegetables, you have to develop a taste for Faulkner. I don't, I, I don't know that I've ever met anybody. There's probably somebody out there, many people who exist who are going to comment on the Facebook page about how wrong I am, but I haven't met anybody who loved Faulkner right away beginning with his novels. Mm. His short stories are a little different. Not all of them are stream of consciousness. They they, ten, they tend to have more of a, a cohesive mm-hmm. plot and they're easier to read. But I've never met anybody who just like picked up a Faulkner novel and was like, this is the best and easiest thing I've ever read. I love it so much. The themes <laughs> and the content and the style are so accessible to me. Like, um, mm-hmm. I, I don't know that guy. Um, and I'm not that guy. Uh, but when you have a taste for him... Well, you're not any guy. Uh, that is very true. I am not any guy. And um, yeah, so I I think that Faulkner is somebody you have to develop a taste for his style and content. Um, and you got to have a bit of a tough skin. Um, but once you get it, it's really worth it. Like it's so worthwhile mm. to develop the taste for him, just like wine or vegetables. Go for it. One, one of the things that I, I was thinking, I, I have been thinking as I've been reading this again, and this is my Second, I think it's only been my second time reading this straight through. I read a bunch of Faulkner in, in college. I did an independent study on the um, on the American Gothic novel, and we and we read 
in that I, I read Absalom, Absalom, for example. Um, but it's been a long time since I've read this high school, early college, something like that. Uh, straight through, I've read, you know, passages and gone back to it here and there. But I was, I was being reminded how I think one of the reasons that a lot of people have trouble with it is because the book makes you read at a different pace than what we're used to. Exactly. You know, when you, a lot of times when you read your, your eyes and your brain and, and your eyes are ahead of the book, so to speak. And so Faulkner is demanding that you kind of slow down in that way. It's kind of like reading, you know, poetry or, you know, T.S. Eliot or something like you can't let your brain get ahead of you in the way that you can when you're reading Agatha Christie or, you know, a lot of people. And if you slow down, it goes a lot faster, if that makes sense. If you slow down, it becomes a lot more clear what's happening. And we're going to kind of do some plot summary in a little bit. But I, I, I was just reminded of how Faulkner is asking us to read in a different way. And that's disorienting. Like that's kind of hard to, to read. Like, it's like, it's like learning to walk in a new way or like you in, like Tim and I play basketball, Jack plays basketball, your son, honey. if you're injured, you like, say you, and you have to like learn to do a move a different way. Or like you, you like you hurt your thumb. And so for like a few weeks, you have to learn to shoot a basketball just a little bit differently to still maintain that efficiency. It's almost like that with reading Faulkner and, and there's other writers like this too, but where you kind of have to just adjust your whole approach to the way your brain is wired to get through it. And That's if you just comparison. read the way you normally do, you're going to blast through it and you'll be like, wait, what just happened? Yeah. Or what's going on? But if you go slow, I even recommend reading it aloud because then your brain, you're, you're like, your brain is processing it slower because you're reading it out loud. And you know, it's just hard because he is demanding things of us. Like it's a different exercise. Um, Tim, how many times have you read this? Never. This is your first time. This is my first time. Nice. Have you read read Faulkner before? Fury. Okay. Okay. I've read, um, oddly enough, Sanctuary. My sister bought me Sanctuary as a birthday gift and I really struggled through that book, even though it was supposed to be kind of his pop book. You know, it's yeah. still Faulkner. <laughs> even his pop book is still like, it's, it's well, hard work. Like it's really Cormac hard work. Cormac McCarthy on like the worst day of his life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. That book is so, that, is, that book is a lot. <laughs> I think for readers who Faulkner is new to them, the closest comparisons that we've done kind of in our whatever in all the years that we've been doing this podcast are probably Ernest J. Gaines in that he's got a shifting perspective and a bunch of different narrators. So I think that's probably the number one comp. And the number two comp that the number two comp is probably Cormac McCarthy, even though the book that we read is not, in my opinion, very Faulknerian. Mm-hmm. It's his, it's Cormac MacArthur's Blood Meridian book. Is. Yeah, Blood, Blood Meridian, Meridian is. Yeah. But the, the books before that, those three books before that that were all set in Tennessee, even Sutri, those mm-hmm. to me are a lot more mm-hmm. like written in I think Faulkner was probably his most direct influence on his style during those early books. Well, O'Connor's got a lot of Faulkner in her. She's influenced. Mm. And then I think that Zora Neale Hurston as well, because uh, we read, uh, what, what was, was uh, Their Eyes Were Watching God, 
which has the shifting perspectives in a sense, but also has the the dialect, yeah. which is such a big part of Faulkner as well. And that can that's one of the reasons you have to slow down is because they're not trying to talk in ways that you would normally read. Yeah. Well, it's gonna be fun. So so what's your impression? I mean, having read reading a quarter of the book so far, whatever it is. It's not easy. I sympathize with the readers who are like, what are we doing here? I listened to the first 10 chapters on Audible. I got the Audible book and I was driving down the road and I think I got to chapter 10 and I was like, I just don't know what I'm doing. I don't know where I am in this book. And I went Mm -hmm. back all the way to the beginning and read the whole thing again. And then it started to make sense. And I also made a cheat sheet for myself for Mm -hmm. little mini biographies of the different speakers. And that helped a lot. And I'll admit it. I went on spark notes and just cheated on the first half of the plot. And I'm not ashamed of that. Sometimes you got to do it. You don't need to be ashamed to own it. Yeah. This book is not about the plot so much. So I actually, like I recommend going on spark notes and reading each chapter, like print them out, put them in each chapter. Like, so you know what's happening because it, when you, you know what's happening relax. and you read it, yeah, exactly. It feels tense. When you when you get that little paragraph that summarizes what's happening and then you go back and read it and you're like, oh yeah, that is that is what's happening. That is what's <laughs> happening, right. Like it's all there. I just was missing it. Yeah. It's really a book that, you know, that would be great for us to read the whole thing and then go back and then do it again. Like that's the ideal way to do uh-huh, this. Uh-huh. Give people a month to read it and then go back. But that's not the way the show works. So yeah. we can't really do that. But go ahead, Heidi. Yeah, I think that in, if know the plot, uh, especially just like the general gist of Adi Bundram is dying and these are her children and there's some secrets and that are going to be revealed and they're taking her body to be buried in Jefferson County uh, where she was born. But Ants just really wants his false teeth. Like if that's, if you know that, <sighs> then yeah. I think it it's really helpful because so much of the story is getting behind the eyes of the individual characters and getting to know them and think what they're thinking and feel what they're feeling. And then also this is a book that rewards paying attention to detail. And if you're constantly trying to find the plot, like it's one of those books that if you know the, if you know the forest, great, because it's really the trees that are what's important. Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. so if you're trying to catch on to what's going on all the time, it, it's distracting in a sense, which is funny. That's why Faulkner's so great. In a sense, like the plot's almost distracting to the point of the book, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> which is mm-hmm. that the characters, which is their, their inner lives. And, um, and that takes enough deciphering because stream of consciousness is hard, um, to be, then to be trying to figure out the overarching plot. So just go and figure out what the plot is and then come back and read carefully for those little, you know, humanizing details about these remarkable weirdos. (laughs) I would say that one thing that one cue toward listening would be, I think every major character has got a pretty significant secret that is going to be divulged somewhat indirectly during the course of the book, right? Like maybe and those secrets cash, are coming to the fore because of her dying, because, exactly. because of the mother dying. Right, 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 right. It's like these like, kind of, um, let's call them impurities, kind of working themselves to the surface. This, this big event is happening in their lives and it's kind of like, they're, it's dredging up. Yeah. 
these secrets and, yeah. and like the way those secrets are working on people. Right. So what I'd like to do here for a second is to kind of do some overview stuff. And then Heidi, I'll just talk about some characters and then you're going to kind of do some plot stuff, I believe. But I mentioned this is a Southern Gothic novel and we've read some Southern Gothic before. We've talked about O'Connor, for example. And there's a few things that I think are just worth summarizing about what Southern Gothic novels are about, what they're concerned with. That's just worth keeping in mind because it'll help us understand like, what is the book after in terms of sympathies? Um, what is it exploring? Like, what is it trying to reveal? Who is it? What is it trying to get us to think about? Um, on the one hand, they're often about sort of grotesque situations, you know, like O'Connor. Um, that's a big part of Southern Gothic. It also is very concerned with things like poverty in the South, people feeling alienated, decay, all those sorts of things are big parts of what the Southern Gothic genre or subgenre is going for. So I, you know, I think that that's worth keeping in mind. And usually what happens is there's some kind of illness or death that, as Tim mentions, dredges up the impact of that alienation, of that poverty, of that decay. Um, the things that once were supporting the lives that these people lived or the community that these people lived in are gone. And so the lack of preservation of those things has led to decay, poverty, and alienation. And so Faulkner is exploring what happens to someone's inner life when those things become the dominant forces in their lives. And I just wanted to, I mean, that's like a little English professory English teachery there. But I think that in a book like this, it's worth knowing like this is what he actually Faulkner as a person was, was consumed with. He wanted to give voice to people who were experiencing living in poverty, living in decay, being alienated. And I think if we know that his sympathies are with those people who are enduring that. And that's, I think, helpful to know. So mm -hmm. I just wanted to drop that. Tim, did you want to say something? No, I just wanted to echo what you're saying. I think, I mean, that's just exactly right. If you want to know kind of where his sympathies are and the kind of goals of his fiction, I don't mean the the stylistic goals, but just what he thinks fiction is about. His Nobel Prize speech is magnificent. And mm. it really is mm -hmm. clear that he wants to be kind of a voice for those who have been maligned and swept to the side. And, and like, for me, reading this book is like, man, there are so many problems. Yeah, maybe they're self-created. Maybe they're not self-created because of the kind of like extreme pressure of poverty that's put on this family. But um, I have so much sympathy with just the kind of trial that daily life is. Um in this part of the world at this time in history. Hmm. Hey, what were you going to add to something there? Yeah. You were frozen. I, so I couldn't, I want to make. Yeah. I think I can't help but compare Faulkner's like voice for the voiceless kind of project uh, with Wendell Berry's and, um, and yet they go at it in such very different ways. Like Barry attempts to kind of ennoble the simple, ordinary person, like, and, and this kind of lost um, lifestyle that was, uh, was once the bedrock of American society. Right. And he wants to, to give a, to give new eyes that ennoble that life. Faulkner is very different. He's it's, it's a similar kind of project um, and, and a similar part of the world, but 
he does it by kind of unflinchingly exploring the degradation of it upon the human spirit. And he doesn't make his characters very likable. And, and he puts them in situations that are grotesque, that, that push them beyond the bounds of what we would call ordinary life. There's some things coming in this novel that are just really hard to read uh, that, that are, that explore kind of the, the finality of death and the impact that that makes, especially without a, um, an ennobling con- uh, societal context for people to try to make sense of that. And we're going to see that probably the most in Bartimum, but also in the other characters too. Um, and, and Dewey Dell as well, like this, this whole idea of if, if we are, not, if our society is not ennobling the masses, right, what happens? And I just, that's just what you said, David, in different words. And it's a similar kind of project to what Barry is doing in the terms of uh, giving a voice to the voiceless and, and attempting to, to see kind of an underserved population with new eyes, but from very, very different, very different perspectives in their fiction. It reminds me, Heidi, of um, a character from Wendell Berry's The Memory of Old Jack, and I can't remember his name, um, but he's kind of, he farms Jack's land, but he's kind of, you don't really trust him. He seems like he's kind of always on the make, um, and mm. he ends up getting yeah. in a what fight is that guy's with name? the neighbor who, who, is who he, wants David? to yeah, I can't remember his name either, but we know who you're talking about. It's the neighbor and he wants to buy yeah. the land and they get in a fight. Yep. And mm-hmm. he's disreputable, this neighbor is. And we kind of, not that Jack is um, always of clean conscience, but there's something about that neighbor that's really disreputable. And I think Faulkner is kind of that giving guy. that character's mm-hmm. backstory. He yeah. ended up in this place for reasons. Some of them are self-inflicted. Some of them are societal. But that's the kind of character that Faulkner is going to focus on, whereas Wendell Berry is going to focus on these proud, simple people who lived lives that were shaped more or less by wisdom. There are some exceptions, you know, but there's kind of a way that they're trying to abide within. And Faulkner is less interested in that way. And he's more interested in kind of shining a spotlight on kind of some of the recesses, especially in the deep rural South that ended up shaping families like this family. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. So we've got a bunch of characters and I'm just going to kind of do an overview here for those of you who haven't done that. I, I mean, go to Wikipedia or SparkNuts or something, make a cheat sheet. But I'm, so we've got Addie. By the end of this section, Addie has died. She's the wife of Ants, and she's the mother of Cash, Darl, Jewel, Dewey Dell, and Vardaman. Her husband then is Ants. He's the father. He doesn't have any teeth. Worth knowing. Does not stop reminding us about this. That his teeth and his snuff. Cash is in his late 20s. He is a carpenter. He is known for that skill. And he is building, at the beginning of this book, he is building the coffin that they're going to use to bury his mother. Then we have Darl. Darl is the narrator of 15 of the, of 19 of the 59 chapters, rather. So he is really our primary narrator. He's the closest thing we have to a primary protagonist. And he, because he's the most, I don't know, eloquent of all the characters, he tends to be the one that you can probably rely on the most for signposts of what's going on. So 
I would do recommend using Darl as your sort of, you know, thing to grab onto his, his narration as the thing to, to grab onto. Um, Does it seem in terms to you, of David, plot. like if there's a voice of Faulkner in the book, that's the voice. Probably, but, but also like be careful about the ending of the book with him. Right, 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 right. Yeah. How do you unmute? Were you, were you saying something? I was saying the same thing. I think, I mean, he's by far the most eloquent, um, but he's, he is fully himself. Like, I don't think he's meant to stand in for Faulkner, but I understand your question is being kind of, is he the most reliable and probably yes. Mm -hmm. Then of course you have Jewel. This is the third of the, of the children. According to Wikipedia, he's probably around 19. He's a half brother to the other children. He is not Anse's son. So that's worth knowing. Speaking of secrets. Then there's Dewey Dell. Dewey Dell is the only... Do we know that... I'm sorry to interrupt you. Do we know that by the end of the first section? And there's clues. There's clues. Let me ask it a different way. Do the other siblings know that? I don't think they know it. Okay, I don't think so either. No, they know the dynamic between Addie and Jewel. They know that Addie favors Jewel. And they know, right, they know that part, um, yeah. Yeah. But they don't seem to know. Although Darl seems to know, but but Darl knows without knowing all the time. So anyway. Yeah, right. Um now I'm gonna there are gonna be things here. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna say some of the things that are there plot wise because I think they're worth knowing. It's it has been revealed between the lines, for example, that Dewey Dell, who is the only daughter, is pregnant. Um, that has been revealed between the lines. It's been revealed in her narration. Um, it, if you're reading slow, you'll probably notice it. If you're trying to read fast, it, it less so. Um, that pregnancy is going is is going to come up again. So that's something worth knowing about her. Then we've got Vardaman. He is the youngest of all the children, somewhere between seven and ten years old, is what is generally. She's generally described as. So what you're getting with his narration is the narration of a, of a young child whose mother has just died. That's like kind of important to, to think about. Then we've got Vernon, who is a friend, is a farmer who lives nearby, and his wife, Cora, and their daughters, Eula and Kate. At the beginning of the book, Cora has baked these cakes, which she doesn't end up needing to deliver because they get rejected. Uh, and then her daughters are Eula and Kate, like I said. Then there's Peabody, who is the doctor. He only narrates two chapters in the whole book. I believe one of them is... We just read one of them towards the end of this section. And then we've got Leif, who is the one who is the father of Dewey Dell's child. So that he will be coming back into it again later. We've got Reverend Whitfield. He's a local minister who is the father of Jewel. We're going to learn that more, more about that later. Some of this is spoiler, but again, this is not a book about the plot. <laughs> and then we've got Samson, who is a local farmer who um, is going to come up in a little bit. He has not shown up yet. And that's, those are the, there's other, a couple other people that do show up, uh, but those are the basic characters. So we've got, as far as the family tree, we've got Addie and Ants with the children being Cash, Darl, Jewel, Dewey Dell, and Vardaman. Then we've got the kind of characters built around that. Um, Heidi, do you want to say anything else about any of the plot that we've run into so far? Just kind of give some context. Anything else that we need to mention that you think will help people? 
And then Tim, if you have anything you want to add from your reading, since you're reading for the first time, anything that was helpful for you, jump on that after Heidi's done. Yeah. Uh, so we open the book with Addie on her deathbed, which becomes very clear. People seem to know she's dying. She's been sick for over a week and her husband has not sent for the doctor until the very last minute. Um, her children are gathered around her. Darl is outside of her window building her coffin so that she can see that he's building a good one, which is funny <laughs> so, um, and really creepy. But also funny, which that's another thing about Faulkner, right? He's funny. Yeah, there's a lot of funny. He he thinks a lot of this is funny. Right. Um, And uh, uh, Jewel and Daryl decide that they are going to go do another delivery to make $3, which is a lot of money. Um, Darl seems to know from the very beginning, we get this insight that Darl's special. He knows things without knowing them. Um, And he... He somehow knows that if they go uh, to make this transaction, that their mother is going to die while they're gone. Um, And so we get that insight into Darl, which is important. We also learn then that Jewel doesn't care, that he is his mother's favorite, and yet he is interestingly enough, although not his son, the most like ants out of all the children, which is very interesting. And I think that becomes important in the story too. Um, He doesn't care that he's going to miss it. He just wants his $3. Um, And so they leave uh, and aunt sends for the doctor. Peabody arrives. Um, We find out that the family lives on top of a mountain. And so Peabody, who's a large man, has to climb up. Um, and, and, And then and he dies. And meanwhile, Vardamum has caught a fish. Uh, and that is really important in the story. Who knew that a fish would become so important in a story? But yeah, this little boy catches a fish um, and it remains uncooked, uneaten, and just chopped up and bloody. And somehow this boy, we learn at the beginning, or right at the end here, is associating his mother's death with the fish. Um, Dewey Dell is pregnant and she knows it, but nobody else knows it. Um, and it's beginning to consume her thoughts and it's taken over her pre she's preoccupied with this, um, while her mother is dying. Um, and that is pretty much where we have left off. That is what is how we also know that Ants has made a promise to Addie to take her back to Jefferson County where she was born. Um, and that he intends to keep that promise. We also know that he wants to get false teeth because he can't eat and he wants to be able to eat the way God has made food for him. Um, we learn that he's lazy. Um, and so we have what we have here at the end is a lot of insight into the individual characters. But in terms of like the main plot, we have a mother who is dead in a poverty stricken family and they're going to take her body and bury it somewhere else with her people. And that's the most relevant um, part of the story that we need to know right now. Hmm. Tim, got anything to add? No, I just wanted to, um, Heidi said it at the end that the rest of the book is going to be kind of consumed with getting Addie back to the place of her birth. So this is going to be kind of a reverse odyssey. We're going to shift into it. Yeah. Reverse odyssey. Yeah. Did you guys so, read? Go ahead, David. No, go. That yes, Faulkner, I read the odyssey. Um, read, wrote most of this book while working mm-hmm. the midnight shift at a coal fired power plant. 
he had a hard time making a living on his writing early yeah. on. Like this was after the sound of the fury was already out. Like he, he had already written and published some of the books that he is best known for. Yeah. This is one of the five books, you know, it, it took a little while. Um, I, I want to talk about the problem, the kind of like challenge of reading uh, Faulkner and the points of view. Um, and if you guys are good with it, I'd like to read something that I found online um, that I thought was really interesting. I want to hear what you guys think of this. This is from MPR News, not NPR, NPR News. It's just, there's a guy named uh, Christopher Rieger and he has, he writes about some advice for, for reading Faulkner. And I want to read a little bit of this if that's, if that's cool. Just would love to know if you go, what you guys think of this. So he says, be patient, which we talked about. He says, quote, think of a Faulkner text as a suspense or mystery story, but with you, the reader, instead of a character as the detective. Or think of the text as the slow unfolding of a jury trial with yourself as a juror, sitting in court, listening to and sifting through varying and sometimes contradictory testimonies of a parade of witnesses, knowing that finally you'll have to make up your own mind about what actually happened and who is and is not telling the truth. He then says... Or better yet, think of Faulkner's novels as symphonic in structure. And just as a symphony moves from section to section, presenting varying moods and impressions, altering speeds and rhythms, at times introducing leitmotifs, uh, melodic phrases that are associated with an idea, person, or situation, and themes that will be developed more fully later on. At other times, then, looping backward to recapitulate earlier themes, but always advancing towards a final resolution. So too does a Faulkner novel employ shifting tones and impressions, hints and foreshadowings, repetitions and recapitulations, time shifts, looping backward and forward, all consciously intended to shape the story, not so much on the pages of the book, but in the reader's mind and imagination. And he goes on, since in many respects, Faulkner's stories are more about impressions than events or facts. I don't care much for facts, Faulkner once said. The way to read a Faulkner novel, at least the first time, is to immerse yourself in the rich and the powerful dialogue. Lose yourself in the rhythms and sounds, delight in the detailed descriptions and the images, and wait, ignoring for the time being what happened before or what's going to happen next. Um, what do you, and, then he, and then he also has the advice of be willing to reread. <laughs> so that's the next thing he talks about. What do you guys think of that? What Christopher Rieger says. That sounds great. That sounds like really good advice for reading Faulkner. I like that. Agreed. I think it's great. Rereading is preparing. That's it's mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Faulkner yeah. rewards rereads. It's so rich. It really is so good. Like Faulkner is so good and very, very insightful. Um and beautiful like his writing so beautiful the sun rose like a bloody egg how that's so beautiful like it's that Mm -hmm. he's brilliant and absolutely worth taking the time and the trouble um to get to get to know it really is like a fine wine it opens up like in the air like you have to um uncork it and let it sit for a while like decants this writing nicely said yeah that's good Mm. The, in this in this article, he goes on to say, focus on the characters. Hmm. And he talks, Faulkner has this quote where he said, I think not of writers, but of their characters. I remember the characters they wrote about without being able to even remember who always, just, just who wrote the piece. Hmm. Um, and it says here, uh, since for Faulkner himself, the heart of his fiction is his characters. And since no other writer with the possible exception of Shakespeare and Dickens has created such a wide range of characters, a good way to approach his fiction is to engage the characters. Who are they? 
what do they think? Are they tragic or comic or pathetic or ridiculous? Are they significant or insignificant? Um, why do they behave the way they do? He gets into that. And then he also says to um, look for the timeless tales. Um, so he says some people just call him, you know, a Southern writer, but he thought of himself as something, you know, trying, trying to get at something even more uh, grand. And so it's, he says Faulkner's fondness for incorporating older myths and narratives into his stories is evident in his use and reuse of various biblical materials, for examples, and Shakespearean allusions. And so he's suggesting that one thing you can do to kind of help you get, get a foothold is to look for things you already know, like look for things you recognize from other things you've already read in classic literature, because Faulkner was a, was a big, you know, he was constantly alluding back to what inspired him um, and trying to connect to previous literature in the canon. I think that's a good, I think that's a really good, good thing to do too, just because it gives you something to grasp onto as a reader. Yeah. Cora is going to make a lot of biblical allusions or at least is going to be like, she is at home in the church. And that's something to grab onto. A lot of our listeners are going to be real familiar with like biblical quotations or notations. That's something you can grab onto and be like, oh yeah, yeah. this is Cora. That's easy to identify Cora with like her affection for the scriptures and church life. Mm. I, David, I would like at some point to like just talk a little bit about literary modernism because we yeah, are like squarely within this book, this is kind of really representative of literary modernism. And we don't like to talk too much about schools of thought, you know, because it, they can sometimes minimize the impact of a book when you say, oh, this is representative of feminist literature or something like that. Like, okay, it'd be kind of helpful, but I think it's really important for us to kind of let books speak for themselves and not mm-hmm. as representations of a particular school. Yeah. That being said, I think this might be worth making an exception and talking about modernism. Okay. So modernism, and I want to be really clear that I'm talking about literary modernism. There's a bunch of different modernisms out there ranging from architecture to literature, to art, to philosophy. I, I have a friend named Matthew, and he did his um, master's work in literature, and he was always talking about modernism. Most of my, when I knew Matthew, I was reading a lot of philosophy. And modernism and philosophy and modernism and literature, they're pretty different things. They're kind of concerned with pretty different things. And so Matthew and I were like always arguing. I was like, that's not what modernism is. And he was like, that's not what modernism is. And so then we kind of figured out, oh, we're just talking about different kind of genres. So I'm talking about literary modernism. So for me, the kind of great representation of literary modernism is James Joyce's Ulysses. What is unique about James Joyce's Ulysses? A lot of the same things that you're going to find in... Faulkner's work. Just more impossible to read. Yeah, just more impossible to read. And then you get (laughs) Finnegan's Wake, which comes later, which is just impossible. It's just Just impossible to read Finnegan's Wake. Yeah, just don't do it. Actively impossible. He's trying to make it impossible. Right. And he succeeds. Well done. Hmm. There's a real concern with trying to not tell stories in a traditional way. And so the two things that are most often kind of toyed with are perspective. Mm -hmm. And the second one, the timeline. 
So in Faulkner, the timeline is kind of shattered. We will jump back in time, oftentimes several years, and it'll be noted by perhaps like italics on the page or maybe by nothing at all. Mm-hmm. So there's, but, but it will still kind of feel like the present to the speaker. If, if Darl has kind of like a flashback to 15 years earlier, the circumstances of what he's flashing back to will feel very, very real and present. So that comes to the second thing that I mentioned, which is point of view. There's this real focus in James Joyce's Ulysses and, of course, in this book on stream of consciousness. So the stream of consciousness we've talked a lot about on this show it is a kind of form of storytelling that doesn't do that tries to actually mimic the kind of river flow that is real human thought. So when we're thinking about um, the test that I have to take this afternoon, that preoccupation with the, the the history test that I've got to take this afternoon is mixed up with my affection for English muffins spread with natural peanut butter, which is also intermingled with my hope to like make more money when I graduate from school, which is intermixed with like my worries about my car loan, which is intermixed with my relationship with my uncle, which is, you know, so all these things are kind of floating Circles in back the around. stream of consciousness. They're kind of floating on the river and Faulkner and um, Joyce are going to not filter all that stuff out in the way that someone like Tolstoy would filter that stuff out and be really unified and presentational with his storytelling. Mm. There are a bunch of other aspects of modernism that like maybe we could get into a little bit later in the book. For me, it's the broken timeline and stream of consciousness interiority. Those are the, yeah. two, the chief two things about this book that stand out. And that takes us back to the idea of like, he's not interested in facts because I'm, I've been reading a lot of Wendell Berry to prepare for a talk that I'm giving um, later this month. And I was reading his essay on the loss of the university. Mm-hmm. And in it, he makes this suggestion that there's a difference between facts and truth. And that in the 20th century, we began to think that because something was factual meant that it was true. And it seems like Faulkner is really interested less in what's factual and more what's in true, mm-hmm. more what's true. Mm-hmm. And so what he's trying to do is explore like the truth of what is in a soul that is in, that is enduring something, not like what are the facts of that endure of, of that they're going through to endure. What is the truth that is within them? That isn't always something that you can organize most of the time we can't look at the truth. Like you have to be an extremely self-aware person to look at the truth of what's inside yourself and then make it orderly. Right. Like if you're able to understand it in an orderly fashion, let alone express it in an orderly fashion. Mm. Um, so I think, I think what you're saying like that his interest in less, less of what's factual and more what's true has to do with his role or is a part of what makes him a key figure in the modernist movement, along with T.S. Yeah. Eliot and Yeats and people like that. How do yeah. you go ahead? You were going to say something. Yeah. This I is think, much more like classroom uh, episode than normal. Yeah. Right. Well, it's useful for reading Faulkner because he's, he's one of those authors that I think does 
reward having some context for him um, and understanding what he's trying to do. So I, I think it's really worthwhile. I also think that there are a lot of things that uh, the moderns, the modernist movement got wrong. Um, but I think that the idea of um, memory making us who we are and that the stories that we tell ourselves are often more real to who we are than this, than the actual facts of what's going on. I think they got that exactly right. And, um, and in order to, to do that, they have to come up with some different narrative structures, right? It makes a lot of sense. Stream of consciousness and, the, and, and is, is the way of honoring the character stories, um, a way of saying like, that they're that we're going to tell their story from their own perspective, not from some like godlike outsider looking in and and speaking for the character, but allowing the character to speak for themselves in uh, in in a moment of life that's profoundly formative, losing a mother. Um, and he even gives voice to Addie later, so that she can speak for herself. Um, and and I think that's a that's a loving act on the part of an author, and it's worth trying to wade through that as readers uh, to do justice to, I think especially to the fact that that Faulkner is putting voice to people who we might not always want to hear their story, right? And, mm. um, or mm-hmm. giving them, a, giving them a, a way to speak for themselves as wholly theirs, not just some kind of like I said, some kind of godlike outsider who knows everything. Yeah, we're not filtering it. We're not filtering them, the right. Yeah, we're not filtering the dirt out of their their yeah. tale. We're letting their tale be told the way the way they are thinking they it and it. experiencing yeah. it in the moment, like in that imminent moment of time. This is what Vardamum is is feeling and thinking and experiencing. It's a lot different from reading like a case study from his caseworker later, who's like, this child has an IQ of 55 and has been through a traumatic event, losing his mother. And you know what I mean? Like this is, this is him speaking for himself. And when do we ever get that? Like that's, I think it's a a profoundly honoring way um, to speak for these characters and on their behalf, uh, while also still truly telling the story that, Fardeman is indeed a victim of circumstances, but also a perpetrator. He's out there beating some guy's horses, right? Like, so it is, it is truly, um, it's very disorienting to read Faulkner, I think, because of his style, but also because of what he's asking us to do with these characters, which is to hold a really, really hard story and try to love them and, and, and enter into their voice anyway. It's a big ask on the part of an author. It's yeah. a brave thing to do. Yeah. Have you guys read the recent article in the new yorker called the case against the trauma plot yes i read that from january yeah by parul segal you should read this everybody should go read it because it it talks about the way trauma has become synonymous with backstory and would be really interesting just to think about this article in connection with faulkner yeah Um, yeah because the way it's changed a lot like the way authors use trauma now is to create backstories it's a lot different than what Faulkner was doing here, even yeah. though these people are going through what we would call today traumatic things. But Faulkner probably didn't have that word, at least in the clinical, I don't know, since mm-hmm. probably not. Hey, Tim, go ahead. I think there's one more thing that's worth mentioning about Faulkner. And I don't think this comes directly from Floyd, from Freud, but I think it's kind of downstream from Freud. And it's, 
individuals are driven by things that are below their conscious operation. So again, to juxtapose him with Tolstoy, Anna Karenina is making a lot of bad decisions in Anna Karenina. Levin makes a lot of bad decisions in Anna Karenina. But there's a sense in Tolstoy's writing that both of those characters kind of know what they're up to. Like Anna wants to be loved. And so she's willing to break with her husband to go seek and achieve love. But she's kind of self-aware of what she's doing, right? I think the difference with this book, the difference with Faulkner is that oftentimes the characters are being driven by impulses that are kind of like seething below the surface, you know, like there's this kind of picture of human beings that we are dark pools, we are dark lakes, and we can see some of what's happening near the surface, but a lot of our deepest influence, deepest impulses, sometimes for good, but oftentimes for bad, are almost indiscernible to us. And yet they're really driving us forward. They're really influencing our behavior in a way that like, like Anna Karenina seems to know herself in a way that I think a lot of the characters in this book don't know themselves. And so I think a question to ask at the end of this book is, is Faulkner's vision of the human being, like which do we think like kind of can carry more water, Faulkner's vision of the human being or someone like Tolstoy's vision of the human being? Hmm. Can you get it? Can you, well, well, let's talk about the differences later. I was going to say, cause I'm, my immediate thought was, did Tim just create a false dichotomy? I didn't No, I don't think so. I mean, I think honestly, I think that the, the dichotomy that I'm kind of asking is, are we, are our motives basically known to ourselves or are our motives basically unknown to ourselves? And of course, it's a spectrum and the answer- It depends on how in tune you are with the Enneagram. Oh, they really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that makes sense. Okay, so we, we don't have a lot of time left here. Tim, I know you got a, you got a meeting. You got to go in how, how many minutes do you have left? Seven. Okay, seven minutes. What should we do for seven minutes? Should we look into a particular passage or a particular character, or we're going to be able to talk more in depth about the book specifically and less about Faulkner more generally in future episodes? Heidi, what do you want to do? Should we look at a particular scene? Should we pre- should we kind of model reading Faulkner? I mean, what, what do you think we should do? Because we oh, could read man, the death scene, I'm for example. I'm intimidated by reading him aloud. I really am. So maybe we should do that because it feels a bit intimidating to me. But I would, I want to hear, I want to hear about you because you didn't really talk as much like about your experience with Faulkner. And I'd really love to hear, David, your thoughts on his style because I know you and, and his, and his voice is like a uniquely American writer in the American experience. I know you have some knowledge about that. So do you mind me putting you on the spot and asking you about that? Sure. Um, so I, like I, I've read, like, I, I think I've, I've read this once before. This would be my second time reading it cover to cover. Faulkner is one of those authors who I admire more than I love. 
but that's in part because I'm sort of always in awe of what he's doing. He's, he's holding so many disparate feel like disparate threads together in a way that is kind of mesmerizing. You know, there's famous stories of him writing on his walls, basically how he saw the plot and how the characters connected and the relationship between the families and, you know, snippets of passages that he was thinking, you know, he had, he literally wrote on the wall of his study and his room. Um, so, you know, Mary Jo Tate, who knows a lot about Faulkner would probably be someone to, to give a good Faulkner lesson for us all. <laughs> Mary Jo record a zoom talk, introducing everybody to Faulkner and we'll post it. But I think that the thing that, he's American because he is giving voice to a particularly American people. That's a, that's part of it. Like that's at a very, that's like an essential part of it. And in a way, in a time when that really hadn't even been done as much, right. He is, he is giving, he is offering validity, like a degree of status to a way of experiencing the world and a way of speaking that people before him didn't really do. Um, that's the voice to the voice, this thing that you're talking about. But unlike, you know, there's a poetry to Barry that is very different than the poetry of Faulkner. Faulkner's poetry is very much um, in keeping with exactly how he heard people speak. You know, he wasn't, he wasn't sharp. He was not smoothing out the rough edges of the dialects that he was presenting, which makes him difficult. But I also think as part of what made him he was able to recognize the, let me say this this way, that he was able to recognize the poetry of this dialect then incorporate it into his psychological, these very like deep psychological stories is part of what makes him essential. And when you read slowly, I think that poetry comes out. Um, you know, the scene, for example, when he describes her dying and it's from, I believe it's from Dewey Dell's perspective no it's from Darl's perspective that chapter there's some paragraphs in there that are like like gasp beautiful um and there's a there's a couple comments on the Facebook group and I don't mean to be compatible when I say this but that are saying that the writing's not good and I responded to that to one of them at least and I said well it depends on what you mean by good writing because you know if you're looking for sentences shaped like Jane Austen or Bronte or even Dickens or Shakespeare. It's not good in that sense, but it's deeply poetic in other ways. Um, and in some ways it is poetic on the level of Shakespeare or Homer. I think like there are sentences, there are paragraphs that just not a lot of people, if anybody could have ever written them, um, and the fact that there's repetitions and things like that bothers a lot of people. But when people think they, we think in repetition, like, have you ever thought, if you ever noticed when you're thinking, you'll say the same, well, we do this on the podcast, right? When you're just talking out loud, you say the same words in a way that if you were writing it down and editing it, you wouldn't do that. But, but he does that because he's incorporating, he's trying to find the poetry of the way they spoke and thought. And those repetitions are part of the poetry. Mm-hmm. You know, it's part of the, formal it's, it's like using alliteration or something you know he's making formal choices through those repetitions through making the way people speak he, he is creating formal structure 
out of informal language. And I, that's like that he can do that is mesmerizing. Like yeah. that's a, that, that, that task is n- almost impossible. You know, he's, it's like being the first person ever to translate Homer into English mm-hmm. and doing it in an, in doing it in an eloquent, eloquent way. That's kind of, it's, he's translating for people who have never spoken in that dialect. And that's kind of just mesmerizing. If you read some of the sections from Vardaman's chapters, you'd think, oh my goodness, William Faulkner like has an eighth grade education. It, it, it sounds like that because, well, that's the character that he's writing, right? Yeah. But then you read something like this. This is for me on page 49 and it's Darl speaking. Uh, Jewel, I say. Overhead, the day drives level and gray, hiding the sun by a flight of gray spears. In the rain, the mules smoke a little, splashed yellow with mud, the off one clinging in sliding lunges to the side of the road above the ditch. The tilted lumber gleams dull yellow, water-soaked and heavy as lead, tilted at a steep angle into the ditch above the broken wheel. Mm-hmm. About the shattered spokes and about Jules' ankles, a runnel of yellow, neither water nor earth swirls, curving with the yellow road, neither of earth nor of water, down the hill, dissolving into a streaming mass of dark green, neither of earth nor sky. Jewel, I say. Mm. That's great. It's beautiful. Like, it's so, so wonderful. Beautiful. Well, Do listen to this. This a... is for. Oh, go. go ahead. Well, no, what were you going to say? I was going to say if you ask if you guys had a favorite character yet or one that you're most drawn to, but you might have to think about that. I do. Do you, David? I don't know. Who's yours? It's Jewel because he is such a juxtaposition. Mm. He, he can appear as if he is the most hard-hearted, angry SOB out there. But then if you look at his actions – Something else is going on. This is the guy that you want to have at your side, you know? This is like, hmm. he says all of these hard, like just terse things. But I think there's a real, genuine kindness that, motiv- that motivates him. I think for me at this point in the reread, it's Dewey Dell. Yeah. Oh, she's, she's wonderful. She's processing so many things at the same time. And there's such a variety of, you know, she's pregnant and she's every spectrum of life is been cast upon her. Yeah. Um, and she's trying to figure who she is at the same time, you know? Yeah. And at this point she has absolutely no one by her side. She's got no one to turn to. Right. Hmm. What about for you, Heidi? It's a Vardaman. Like, is it really? Yes, he's so compelling to me. Although everything you're saying, I agree with. Although I don't like Jewel. He is compelling right now. You don't like Jewel? Um, yeah. Okay. All right. Um, but I don't disagree with what you're saying about him. Everything you're saying is right. Like, there's these characters are so human. Like, I mean, I realize that we're behind their eyes and reading their stream, stream of consciousness. But if you picture them not just as like stream of consciousness, but as people that you would meet, like I, they're so human. And this little boy watched his mother die, mm-hmm. and there's nobody mm-hmm. to help him, and he's 
he's like trying so hard to figure out what to do. And this fish is dead. And so of course he associates his mother with the dead. Like, it's just so, it's so Mm -hmm. compelling to me, Mm -hmm. but I really agree with what David said about Dewey Dell too. Like her, she's all, she, she needs her mom. Yeah. (laughs) That's, Mm-hmm. I, it's just all she's at such a transitional age and then cash out there like trying to show his mother that he cares he's like the good boy and he does everything right and but he, like how weird is it that he's building his mom's coffin in front of her like he's so weird i could say it's just there's they're very human people and if we stop trying to decipher the writing and start seeing them as just like people who are thinking and feeling. I think that Mm. transforms the story and opens it up. Mm. There's that the passage I was going to read is Dewey Dell when her, when the mother dies, it's it, Darl's capturing this. And he says, um, so it says the, then they go out as though someone had leaned down and blown upon them, describing Addie's eyes. Ma Dewey Dell says, Ma leaning above the bed, Her hands lifted a little, the fan still moving like it has for 10 days. She begins to keen. Her voice is strong, young, tremulous and clear, wrapped with its own timber and volume, the fan still moving steadily up and down, whispering the useless air. Then she flings herself across Addie Bundren's knees, clutching her, shaking her with the furious strength of the young before sprawling suddenly across the handful of rotten bones that Addie Bundren left, jarring the whole bed into a chattering sibilance of mattress shucks, her arms outflung and the fan in one hand still beating with expiring breath into the quilt. From behind Pa's leg, Vardaman peers, his mouth full open and all color draining from his face into his mouth as though he has by some means fleshed his own teeth in himself, sucking. He begins to move slowly backward from the bed, his eyes round, his pale face fading into the dusk like a piece of paper pasted on a failing wall and so out of the door. Like the, the expressions of their two grief, these two people who need their mother. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the, like that's, that's good writing. Yeah. I don't know what to tell you. That's yeah. good. Like <laughs> it's, it's, well, and if you read it slow enough, compelling. it's not obtuse. No, mm-hmm. it's not. It's just a sentence. And it's from Daryl who wasn't there. And so that adds a whole other layer of interest to the story, right? How does he know this? How can he write about it? Why? I mean, he wasn't in the room. And so there's, again, there's like this, this mist, this thread of mystery and not just mystery, but like mysticism and Mm -hmm. such a real physical, like the physicality of this scene is so right in your face. And yet there's this mystical transcendence of this character who wasn't even there, who's telling the story in such a visceral way. Mm. It's a really brilliant book. Stick with it. Yeah. We got, we're going to wrap this week up. Tim's got to go. He's got a work meeting. I've got to get to the post office and ship some stuff. So my customers can get their books. Heidi, in your veil sweatshirt, you must have something you're doing. Oh yeah. I'm writing today and we have eight inches of snow. We have oh, so well, that's much snow. fun. Yeah. That's I wish we got eight. we get two this inches is, and it's like a blizzard. I know, but you guys, for you, snow is like an adventure every single time, you know, and we live with snow <laughs> all the time in the winter, but I would always prefer that it's snow than just like be cold and gray. So it's, it's kind of a winter mm. wonderland and 
really delightful and I'm making bread and soup. And so it's a good, it's a good day to cozy oh, up. So I'm right. spending the day homeschooling and writing. Nice. nice. Well done. Well, uh, thanks to Center for Lit for sponsoring this week's, this month's episodes. Um, if you want to learn more about bibliophiles, you can go to centerforlit.com. They've got a lot of other things as well, like curriculum materials and online classes and book clubs and all that kind of thing. So thanks to the Andrews family, good friends of ours for sponsoring. Heidi, Tim, thanks so much. We'll, uh, we'll dig deeper into the, uh, the book proper and a little bit less Faulkner general when we get into the, the next episodes, but this has been a good time. So for Heidi White, for Tim McIntosh, I am David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time, happy reading. Happy reading.